Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 45, The Yoga of Plants Part 2 with Eric Joseph Lewis. In this episode, we pick up where we left off with Eric. We talk about some more of his favorite plants, including sweet potato, hickory, and chestnut. We talk about his nursery business and about selecting genetics for nursery stock, about the importance of tree crops, and he gives some really helpful tips for starting your own nursery. He also talks about the importance of selecting for cold hardiness as well as heat, uh, because it looks like we're entering a future of extremes, not just hot. And he gives us some secrets on how to eat Jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes or sunroots in a way that doesn't make you fart for eight hours straight. We also talk about some appropriate technologies that he thinks everyone should be looking into. Things like wood gasification, underground greenhouses, and solar dehydrators. As always, you can support us at patreon.com slash plantcunning, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So we've got um, nettles, we've got hazelnut. Do you have any other uh, rock star plants? Yeah, I definitely love, uh, I love sweet potatoes a lot. They're another one of my favorites, um, just in terms of like a plant that's super easy to grow. Uh, I love eating the sweet potato greens and um, for my starches, you know, it's a low glycemic load kind of starch and uh, yeah, just super productive and, and so easy. Um, I love cassava a lot too. Like I've been getting more into the tropicals, spending my winters down in Florida and cassava is amazing like cassava flour and uh ube yams the the big purple yams man those make some rockin' waffles um yeah and you know uh pecans i think are another amazing tree crop that really needs a lot more breeding work and a lot more experimentation for us to start marching uh that species north and yeah and the sure. other hickories too like i mean McAllister hickory nut is is pretty fatty and their flavor is amazing and they're another one high uh monounsaturated fat and really tasty i mean pecans like oh man here in uh in Frederick last year, the folks at Silviculture, which I guess is technically Myersville, um, Jane Dennison and Mike Judd and Nicole Robinson over there, um, they got an oil press like the Nutty Buddy Collective and um, and Sam Thayer. They've got these nut oil presses that they've been working with. And so yeah. uh, Silviculture got one of those. And Zach Elfers and some of his homies came down from Pennsylvania and pressed a five-gallon bucket of bitternut hickories yeah. into oil. 
Oh my God. It tastes like liquid pecan with a dash of maple syrup in it. It is the most incredible flavor. Not bitter at all. (laughs) Not bitter at all because the bitterness is coming from tannins and the Mm -hmm. tannins are water soluble. So they don't get expressed in the oil. It's just incredible Um, stuff. Yeah. I heard about that. That's like, man, that's a, that's a game changer as far as like, Bitternut hickories. I up we're up here in, in New York, and hickories are one of the, the great trees we can grow up here, especially like um shag bark. Um mm-hmm. pecan is pretty marginal. I've got some like uh some trees from Oikos from the most northern plantings, and I'm testing them out, but those they still have got you know many years before they, <laughs> they yeah. start producing. The problem here is like um the nut uh filling fully like ripening fully same thing with persimmons it's like the persimmon tree will grow fine here uh it'll be hardy but we you know the the ripening of the fruit is is sort of what what is uh uh, questionable right right yeah we have the same issue here where it's like out of the probably 50 or so pecans that i've found in the last five years of really hunting for them in earnest um i've only found one that fills out reliably every year Mm. and that's uh that's one that i call jay's giant and we've got a bunch of those that um we sprouted from seed so hopefully there'll be more that start to produce nuts for us and then you know, I've seen uh, up at uh, Parker Coble's um, place. I'm so blessed. I got to meet that brother before he uh, he ventured on, left his body in the compost pile last fall. Mm. Um, but uh, he has an amazing orchard uh, uh, about an hour north of us in Pennsylvania. And he's got dozens of different varieties that produce up there Kanza and Pawnee and uh, Mohawk and um, so yeah there's there's some promising genetics for us to work with but I think it's really important for more of us to get into this work because you know there's the <laughs> there's not many people doing it and if people don't pick up these genetics they're gonna fade you know he told a story last year of a shag bark hickory that had these huge nuts and super incredible tree and it was growing on the banks of this river and there was this plan to build a bridge and they were gonna knock down this tree to build the bridge and his dad talked them out of it and went and got scion from it and grafted it and got it to take and then shortly after that this major flood came along and actually eroded the riverbanks to the point where the tree fell down anyway wow Wow. yeah so he was able to save that variety like (laughs) just by getting in there at just the right moment it was almost like that bridge coming through put the urgency on him to go and get that scion wood and get it to graft. And, you know, I think about how many trees are there out there like that, where it's like this incredible genetics that is 
just you know turning into squirrel turds in the woods (laughs) (laughs) well the squirrels are having a good time yeah yeah they're having a blast and i bet they're planting a few dozen of them every year you know Yeah. yeah for sure so we'll get to see so maybe we should talk about plant propagation and the nursery business a little bit more after that story. How did you get into um, starting a nursery, the Plant Path Nursery? Yeah, I mean, um, I've been propagating plants for a while because, you know, it really dawned on me pretty early on that like we want to be giving thanks to these plants and the highest way to give thanks to them for supporting us literally from the moment the umbilical cord is cut until we die and you know leave this little leather bag of compost tea behind um you know the best way to give them thanks is to propagate them and i think the the highest expression of life in general tends to be um, old growth mixed deciduous forest in my experience. That's just like when I look around, it feel I feel like the deepest level of vibrancy and diversity and harmony in these old growth forest habitats. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought to myself like, wow, foraging would not work for the population level that we have you know we would just destroy the whole planet if everybody switched right now over to 100% wild food yeah like there'd be no habitat left there'd be nothing left for wildlife yeah and so I just kind of started getting on this trip of like you know could we actually live on uh, a wild diet if the habitat was restored. And then I heard like, you know, five to 9 billion American chestnuts was the estimate. And if you average that out to a hundred pounds of chestnuts per year, um, and, a calorie density of around 1100 calories per pound, uh, that one species could have produced enough food to feed the entire world 500 calories a day about, or everybody in the U S over 4,000 calories a day of just chestnuts alone. And that made me think like, okay, so all we have to do is reforest. (laughs) If we reforest everything, we'll be fine. And with chestnuts. Well, yeah, I mean, that would just be one species growing yeah. east, of the, east of the Mississippi River. That's like one species in one small bioregion. Yeah. And just like that kind of led me down this whole rabbit hole back in like 2013 when I was first really starting to focus more on permaculture and cultivation in general. Got me really thinking like, you know, because permaculture was based on that book by... Um, oh gosh what's his name permanent agriculture yeah yeah yeah. a more permanent agriculture yeah by j russell smith i think yeah j russell smith yeah 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 and so like you know he had it dialed in back then he was tuned tuned into like how powerful the tree crops are way back then and 
uh, I just started really sitting with that more and more and thinking about how much I love living in a forest and like, you know, you go outside right now and it's like late July being in the full sun is stifling and it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty hot. (laughs) Go sit in like a forest every afternoon, every evening when I'm done working and I'm sweaty and I'm tired I uh, drive 15, 20 minutes up the road to this beautiful waterfall. It's in this like wooded valley surrounded by basswood trees and birch trees and Mm. um, some uh, hackberries or sugarberries, whatever you want to call them, Celtus, Celtus species plants. And oh my God, it's so gorgeous. And the water's nice and cool. It's probably like 70 degree water. What? And just like sit down in the creek because it's spring fed and it Mm. travels for less than a quarter of a mile before it gets to this epic waterfall. And I just go and sit in it for 15 minutes at the end of each day. It's so refreshing. And you're just like kind of cradled by this beautiful forest and this deep shade and you can feel that there's something different there it's more alive mm. and um i think that we can totally just take over all of these cornfields the 300 million acres of soy and corn and wheat and sugar beets and take it over with hazelnuts chestnuts pecans hickory nuts walnuts you know and and make a more much more beautiful world and that would just be kind of a transitional thing while we get back in balance get our numbers down a little bit get a little more chill a little more tuned in a little more prayerful yeah (laughs) and yeah I think that would be a great a great direction for us to go so I uh met Dan last year um Dan Blackmore he's um my partner in uh in plant path and um he said hey do you want to start a nursery with me I was like heck yeah I want to start a nursery with you he had like 3,000 chestnut seedlings going at the time and I had a couple hundred pecans and chestnuts and my little squirrely nursery and like buckets and like air pruning beds and like all kinds of stuff I want to hear about air pruning beds it's something that um I don't think a lot of our listeners know about yeah air pruning beds I think are the way we do most of our trees here at plant path and air pruning beds and this is a technique that um first got brought to my attention by Akiva Silver Yep. Yeah, uh, uh, twisted, twisted tree. tree. Yeah, you, you got it. <laughs> brilliant, dude. What mm-hmm. a brilliant human being. Seriously. Um, so yeah, that just that idea of like, okay, these tap-rooted trees, they want to grow down as fast as they can. And you see it big time with like persimmons and hickories and pawpaw. Yeah, pawpaw. So these trees will get root bound very quickly in a pot. One season they're root bound, they're suffering. You transplant them. You either have to snip off the tap root or whatever. You're going to damage it or leave it deformed and you plant it, plant this deformed tap root that's never going to establish properly. Or uh, Akiva, I don't know if he came up with this idea or 
I think uh, he found out about it from like uh, old school, like Northern Nut Growers Association members, but I'm not sure. Dude, the Northern Nut Growers, thank you for that association. Big shout out to the Northern Nut Growers Association. That's uh, Parker Coble was the president of the Northern Nut Growers Association for a long time. He was a brilliant, shining human being. So glad I got to meet him. Um, but yeah, just this idea that if we put them in a limited space by putting like uh, building basically a raised bed with um, hardware cloth or some kind of like mesh that the roots of the tree can penetrate through um, and lifting that whole raised bed box off the ground. So the idea is that you plant these trees in the raised bed, the tap root grows down through the hardware cloth and it gets exposed to the air and the air dries it out and it says, oh, I'm in this limited little lens of soil. I can't go any deeper. Let me switch up. And it does like some kind of a hormone switch where instead of putting energy into taproot formation, it puts energy into creating this beautiful, dense little root ball of fibrous feeder roots that will draw as much nutrient as possible from this limited lens of soil that it's stuck in. And then you pull it out of that and transplant it and it resumes taproot formation. So the taproot will form naturally without any deformities and you have uh, a far happier tree with much greater potential for longevity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What a great appropriate tech. Yeah. Super appropriate tech. And, you know, I built one of these little raised beds out of some scrap wood, a scrap wood and like a little piece of throwaway hardware cloth that was laying around my, uh, my buddy, Will Kramer's farm. Um, he owns a awesome nursery down in Southern Maryland. And, um, I had been living with him for like four or five years. Like we met in the permaculture design course in 2013 and, think I moved in in like 2014 like we were just fast friends and um still great brothers to this day and uh so he had some scrap materials laying around and I built one of these little beds and harvested a bunch of chestnuts and popped them in there and it was like 150 trees you could fit into this little like two foot by three foot bed that two people can lift into the back of my Toyota Corolla and you know like if you space them appropriately like 60 foot spacing per tree that's only like 12 trees per acre so I could fit in the back seat of my car trees enough to plant out 20 50 maybe even 100 acres in the back of my car in these little air pruning beds and they'll be happy and they'll establish well and they might live for a thousand years and if like you know, 500 years from now, some like super high enlightened Buddha baby comes wandering along into my chestnut field and they're, they're all hungry and wanting a snack so that they can continue their meditation and they gather these chestnuts and they eat them and then they bliss the heck out. That's numbers on my bliss body. That's like good karma (laughs) points for me. So like, 
this is like serious investment banking going on here. I'm banking <laughs> karma points for like a thousand years by doing these air pruning bids. Yes. Yeah. So this is something that people can really do in their backyards. You could literally grow uh, 50 acres worth of trees for a year, like on an apartment balcony. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. On an apartment balcony. And I mean, you don't even need to go that fancy. You could in, in a, I've done in a five gallon bucket, you can cut the bottom off of a five gallon bucket and put the hardware cloth there and set it on a few bricks. Mm. And in a five gallon bucket, you can get 15, 20 trees easy. Yeah. And you don't even have to pay for the bucket. You can go to your local grocery store and you go to the bakery area where they have like, you know, those like, scary cakes and muffins and stuff <laughs> that are all like yes. electric blue and like fluorescent orange and stuff well all that icing comes in these five gallon buckets and they throw it out and you can go and talk to them and say hey you guys got any buckets that you're throwing away and they'll fill your car with them for free mm -hmm. so you can that. yeah divert the waste stream and yeah. and get all these free materials and then you go gather some nuts. And the next thing you know, you, you've got to plant a forest. You've so, got a forest to plant. So it's not that hard. That's what you're, that's what I'm gathering. Yeah. It's not that hard. And if folks follow me on YouTube, I promise I'm coming out with uh, a video series on how to start uh, a small nursery using these like low tech, no tech, super cheapy, DIY kind of uh, techniques. Very cool. And so how, how important also is like your selection of like seed, like where are you getting these, uh, these nuts from? I think that's what it's all about. I mean, you know, we want the highest quality genetics to be going out there. And um, so I like to go with trees that are growing local to me and um Basically, like what I've done for some years is like with chestnuts in particular, um, we've got, you know, the Chinese chestnut has been planted all over uh, in the wake of the blight coming through Cryphonectria parasitica, wiping out all the American chestnuts, created the impetus for people to start planting Chinese chestnuts. And so when I see Chinese chestnuts, I hunt for them when they're in flower, um, but you can also see them as the nuts are filling out. They have those like lime green pom-poms, those like little spiky balls yeah. all over the tree. And I'll just go and I'll knock on the door and I'll say, oh, what a lovely chestnut tree you have there. Um, do you harvest the nuts? And they almost always say no. And I say, oh, aren't those spiky balls annoying? How about this? How about if you let me gather up all of the nuts and I'll rake the spiky balls up to sit near the base of the tree so that you don't have them all over the yard or I'll rake them up and throw them in the wheelbarrow and dump them off on a corner of your property for you. And people are usually thrilled with that uh, trade, you know? And for me, I wanna get rid of those spiky balls just for the sake of harvesting the nuts and separating the hippie food from the more high quality food that I share with others. Um, 
you know, cause the first round, like when you get them from off of the ground, they're bound to have a bunch of the, um, worms. Yeah. Kerkulio say, or carry a tripes, uh, the little chestnut weevil. And, um, so then, you know, when there's weevil damage, I don't mind. I'll eat a little weevil poop. I'm not scared. Um, but uh, protein, maybe. Yeah, yeah, a little protein. I definitely eat the weevils too. Um, but the ones that you shake down from the tree, they'll have little to no weevil damage. Mm. And so I put them in two separate piles. And so I, I like to rake up all the balls uh, every afternoon when I'm done harvesting anyway and so that's a fair enough of a trade for most homeowners and then you figure out you know which nuts are the fat ones which trees produce the best which ones are the most disease resistant i love getting food from like old trees there's something that like really lights me up about that idea of just like wow i'm building the cells of my body out of a being that has existed on this land for like 200 years and it's been through the most intense floods and the hottest driest summers and the coldest wettest winters and it's been exposed to insects and storms and hurricanes and like you know here's this super tough being that's still so generous and giving and you know, producing so many nuts every year. Um, That's the kind of being that I want to be. So I love the idea of like building my body out of that kind of food. I love that. I like, I like hearing how you think. I like the way you think. (laughs) (laughs) Building the cells of my body with these ancient beings. Like, love that. Yeah. And like chestnuts, God, they're so good. It's like a grain Mm -hmm. on a tree. Yeah. yeah yeah they're way better than a grain <laughs> yeah chestnut flour pancakes oh my god yum <laughs> that's what i like to that's what i like to carbo load on some like super complex carbs like right. i really want to figure out do y'all know anybody who's doing like chestnut flour pastas or anything mm-hmm. like that not i want to figure aware out. of but if there are any listeners who are you know contact eric yeah, please get in touch. I want to figure out chestnut flour crackers, yeah. cereal, and pasta. Because yes. those are three of like the super like processed foods that so many people are over consuming and getting themselves sick on. And I would love it if we could, you know, create a, a, a network like not not a large conglomerate but like a network of small producers small scale processors Mm -hmm. who make these like art artisanal crackers and cereals and you know create like a real chestnut culture chestnut flour maybe like chestnut and cassava flour tortillas or something like that with like avocado oil or or uh the bitter nut hickory oil using the bitter nut hickory oil in there yeah take it to a whole nother level that's an idea thank you so one of the the things uh for me one of the issues that comes up for me in selecting like genetic material to propagate is um well the uncertainty of of climate you know like uh we don't it it seems like the world is warming up uh a little bit and but i don't know what the future is really going to look like 
though. So for me, like I, I'm throwing a lot of mud at the wall. I'm propagating a lot of different kinds of plants, but you know, up here in zone five, zone four, I'm still, I'm propagating, I'm growing those uh, northern hick, northern um, pecans and persimmons and pawpaws, which are very marginal. But maybe, you know, if, if you think the, if the climate stays as it is now, they might be uh, good in 10 years. But if in 10 years, the climate is a lot warmer, um, they'll definitely <laughs> be working out. But uh, it's really uncertain. So what are some of your strategies for that? Are you um, like propagating stuff from more south of where you are? Or are you just um, like, yeah, like what, what are you doing? I'm actually I'm actually going in both directions. So like one of the things that really turns me on a lot is um, this idea uh, that Yana Fishman, uh, Doug Elliott's wife, shared with me this idea of like growing uh, tropical perennials as temperate annuals. Ah. So I'm like growing a lot of like canna edgeless and taro and turmeric and ginger and um, things like that. And yacon is another great one from the Andes. And uh, chayote is this zone eight perennial squash that's been cultivated for like 3000 years all parts of the plant are edible wow um, so yeah i'm experimenting with a lot of stuff like that as far as the trees go though i'm most focused on trees that can go in both directions mm-hmm. so yeah like, nice. obviously i'm focused a lot on the pecans i love pecans and i want to figure out how we can march those north and find the ones that ripen the earliest, fill out the most consistently. Like I'm looking at the genetics of trees that drop in late September. And I want to graft those onto, I want to have like, I love this idea of a backyard breeding, backyard breeder program Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, you could have a single pecan tree with like Jay's giant, Kanza, Pawnee and uh, Mohawk all on the same tree Mm. and you plant it in your backyard and you see which branch fills out the most reliably. And then we take those seeds and we march them a little bit North and plant them out in protected spaces. And, you know, then we have seedlings and we see, and those from those seedlings comes the next, batch of named varieties that we gather the scion from and um yeah and like then we could we could really like scale this operation up i'm working with um my buddy uh rob greenfield he's in the process of uh looking for a place to base out of right now i think he's leaning towards like the Asheville, uh you know western north carolina area for a number of obvious reasons (laughs) But um, we're we're working on a uh, community fruit tree project where we're going to aim to get a thousand fruit and nut trees planted in public spaces this fall. Wow. That's going to be super exciting. It's the beginning of like a million. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this year and next year, we're going to aim for like a thousand, two or three thousand 
but mainly this is just to start really building the momentum around people building these small nurseries the people with the small nurseries connect with the people who have the land that's publicly accessible or that they're willing to open up to the public and we can just start planting these orchards everywhere and then have an online database where people can tell us, oh, this pecan tree fruits at this time of the year in this zone. And mm -hmm. we can figure out where the genetic outliers are, where we have the greatest potential for um, building more uh, successful pecan orchards and chestnuts and, you know, and like, so back to your question about like, as far as factoring in resiliency goes, uh, I think chestnuts are one of my all time favorites because, and I th really think that they should be the backbone of our food system in a lot of ways, because I've seen chestnuts growing uh, down in North Florida, as far South as North Florida, producing awesome nuts, wow. pecans too. I've seen, I've seen a pecan in Melbourne, Florida, producing nuts and then they can go all the way north up into Canada so mm -hmm. that's incredible to me so like pecans and chestnuts both can go all the way up into Canada all the way down into Florida hazelnuts can tolerate zone eight I've seen them growing um, in, as far south as Alabama and mm -hmm. producing nuts and I've seen them growing as far north as uh, New Brunswick Canada so yeah. these plants that have this huge range, I think that should be the foundation for our food systems overall. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I'm also planting a lot of no very northern hardy species too, because we are kind of on the, the edge of zone four. So stuff like sea berry and well, blueberries, oh. of course, and um, uh, gumi, you know, these, these kind of plants, I think are also very important. Like, you know, they'll go down to zone eight, but they'll go all the way up to zone three. So, well, sea berry at least. Yeah, elderberry. Oh my elderberry, God. Elderberry, yeah. Super cold hardy. Stinging nettle is another one I've seen from Sarasota all the way up into Alaska. I hear it grows. Mm -hmm. um, groundnut is another one mm -hmm. all the way South Florida, all the way up to um, Maine. <laughs> Maine, yeah, exactly. The Maine coast. Um, and then uh, sunroots are another one, or, ah. or people call them Jerusalem artichoke. I don't like that name, but. <laughs> Girasole, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. It's funny. Common names are pretty funny. Uh-huh. Because yeah. <laughs> it like, comes from, you know, turning towards the sun, and then it turn and it sounds like Jerusalem. So, <laughs> so I like sunshokes. As, that's a good, good name for them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The, but, yeah, helianthus and... Um, not my favorite one to eat, though. I mean, I, I like the taste, but they don't really digest well. He farts a lot. <laughs> uh, you know what the trick is that you what? might try? I've had really good results with um, shredding it up, uh. like, you know, using a grater yeah. and then lacto ferment it. Okay. And then you pull it out and mix like a little bit of chestnut flour in there or mm -hmm. whatever flour you're working with. And make like these kind of little like latka sort patty of hash beans. brown kind of patty things oh, and then yeah. pan fry it, you know, slow and low until it's crispy. And whoo, they're amazing. <laughs> I they're love amazing. that. 
and it and the the um, lactobacillus processes out a lot of the inulin okay. and whatever inulin is remaining when you cook it you're caramelizing it and turning it into fructose so, so is it an, that sounds amazing it is it enough to do it like the night before and then you can eat it for breakfast the next day like, like a, a week or no do it's like it's like two weeks like okay. a sauerkraut or a oh, okay so it's like i'll do it for a couple weeks and then just have like a half gallon jar in the fridge and okay cool throw it in stir fries and stuff like that That sounds awesome thanks for that pro tip because we we grow a lot of them they're so easy to grow yeah, like they're, yeah, they're fantastic one of the favorites of the moonshiners i hear because ah yeah so productive uh as far as sugar production goes oh yeah they're they're right. another champion uh wapato is another one. Oh yeah uh, sagittaria latifolia is another wetland loving plant that um has edible roots and will grow wild from florida all the way up to maine um same with cattails uh i'm really into like kind of this like walking the line between foraging and gardening and really making those lines as blurry as possible kind of wild tending you know yeah yeah me too I, I think that's the sweet spot yeah totally plants that are easy to grow because I'm like a, I'm a little bit of a wanderer you know so <laughs> I need come and goable gardens as much as possible the more needy and demanding a plant is the less likely you are to find it in my garden because yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I need to deal with beings that are resilient and tough and take care of themselves. For sure. And when I'm there and I feel like giving them the sweetness, they respond well to it, but mm, yeah, they don't depend on it. I yeah. can relate to that with perennial herbs. Like I just, I really have a lot of respect for annual vegetable growers because I, I don't have that much energy to like put into the garden necessarily you know and perennial herbs are just so giving and they take care of themselves and I mean, we still grow a lot of annuals too but yeah you know, that's the beauty of perennials for sure but like a real veggie grow, you know yeah yeah farmer like, like whew, so much work market gardener <laughs> yeah veggie market gardeners. <laughs> yeah. oh man god bless the, the market know. gardeners <laughs> yeah I send out my prayers of gratitude to you, oh, hardworking humans. I know. So intense. <laughs> I'm not built for it. Yeah, same. <laughs> so, um, well, I think that like the, that's the permaculture food forest is just such a great uh, template for, you know, doing that, you know, wild tending, like the mix between gardening and farming and wild crafting. It's kind of like you're doing that. I mean, you're doing that if you're going and foraging, like when, if you're like foraging for wild rice, like that helps the the rice propagate. Or if you're like picking blueberries and stamping down the we the weeds around them, you know, it gives them more sun. Uh, these kind of things, you know, like this is what people have been doing since before we were people. Hmm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And that that wild rice, that's another one that I think should really be at the top of our lists as cultivators and as foragers for us to be hunting it out because like mm. you know uh that's another one that'll grow from florida all the way up to maine uh zizania aquatica here on the east coast and then zizania palustris in the great lakes area for if there's anybody listening from uh texas there's one there called zizania texana 
And that one is uh, actually a perennial one that's super endangered and only grows in one little river. And I think like as, as plant people, like it's up to us to make sure that no more species of plants go extinct. Like, yeah, I like to make it a point to get to know, you know, at least one new um, rare threatened endangered plant in my habitat each year. And try to seek that plant out and gather the seeds Mm. and bring it into cultivation and spread it around, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the other side of like really liking those hardy, you know, leave them and and they'll, they'll do it, do it themselves plants, but also like taking care of those, you know, delicate plants that, that do need to be saved. True. Like Mm -hmm. Apios Priciana, you know, what an amazing plant uh, that is going extinct. But it's a, you know, it's an amazing food plant. It's beautiful. Um, and so like I big ups to Joe Hollis for like getting that into cult, more into cultivation and spreading the seeds around. Yeah, Other- absolutely. I've tried getting that one to grow a few times and it's a tough one. It's a mm-hmm. really tough one. The few what is times- the plant? Apios Priciana, Price's ground nut. Okay. So ground nut, like the Americana. Cool. Yeah, it doesn't have that, the rhizomaceous growing you know, with the tubers that, uh, the, you know, Americana does, but it has like the one big tuber. Mm. I have yeah, gotten some seeds. It. Yeah. Mm. I've gotten, gotten some seeds to grow, but it's really slow growing too. And I think it really likes a little warmer, wetter, like a kind of a swampy, not quite swampy, but definitely wet area. Uh-huh. And I, I, <laughs> I, I, and I transplanted one to one of those areas and it didn't, it, it had, yeah. Well, there's just still a lot to a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah, no okay. doubt. No doubt about it. That's another one that Zach Elfers is working on, and he's gotten some genetics from um, a brother down in Alabama, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just such a tough one because the the couple times that I've had success with it, voles came and got it over the winter, and it mm-hmm. never came back. Oh no, I. The one that the one that I still have um, is growing. I planted seeds underneath a uh, Amorpha fruticosa, so it grew up right through that like dense root mass. So I, I can't even dig it up. <laughs> Good, <laughs> right? And it's a little drier than it maybe should be, and it hasn't flowered yet. But it's safe from the voles, at least, and from. <laughs> yeah anybody yeah else? that's smart i like that thinking because all i really want it for is more seeds mm-hmm. right exactly right mm-hmm. seeds i love that thinking i'm gonna try that next year well that's an, another plant that i've been really liking is a more for fruticosa as far as i mean it's not like uh edible or medicinal but it's a really good nitrogen fixer yeah yeah totally the lead plant or whatever yeah the um the woody shrub one the yep. The lead plant, uh, I just got some seeds of that. That's more of like a prairie plant. It's a little smaller. But the, Is that the called, Bracteata um, maybe, maybe or something? Amorpha Bracteata? Yeah, the, I, th- I think so. The, the Fruticosa is um, called uh, Indigo Bush. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really nice one. Especially for putting, it's a good trellis plant. Like planting like wild yam or, you know, apios underneath it nice yeah that's a sweet one so um are there any more like a, appropriate tech things that you're really interested about or experiments you're doing right now that you're excited about 
Um, yeah, I mean, definitely uh, looking to build a solar dehydrator this year, which uh, I think is one of the most important appropriate tech kind of uh, things that homesteaders and people in general should be looking into. Yeah. I think um, one of the technologies that is the most important to me and that makes the most sense for us to focus more energy on is uh, wood gasification. So ah, yeah, there's like um, wood gasifier stoves, basically, it, you know, it looks just like a wood pellet stove kind of thing. Um, but you can feed it regular logs. And uh, what it does is basically takes the gases from the fire from the wood burning, and forces them back into the burn chamber. And when that happens, you get much higher combustion temperatures and you get much cleaner combustion. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're burning your wood at about 87% efficiency. And the only off gases are carbon dioxide and a little bit of water vapor. And they have these setups where you can totally just hook it in to an existing chimney system or an existing wood burning stove. And because they burn so hot, uh, they have to either be made out of a special metal or they have to have uh, a water jacket around them where there's like this welded water tank that's like two inches thick around the whole surface of the burn chamber to wow. kind of transfer that heat. Yeah. And then you hook that into your hot water uh, tank and you could put it through radiators or through uh, a radiant uh, heated flooring in a house. And doing that, I mean, we could address our space heating and our hot water simultaneously, which when you look at residential electrical consumption in the US, yeah, um, about 41% of our uh, electricity is going to space heating. And then like another 12% is going to, um, is going into, uh, water heating. And yeah. so that's like, that's a major shift. And, and when you think about that, reducing the, I know like residential isn't the biggest consumer, of energy yeah. well actually maybe it is in 2018 uh residential electrical consumption did actually account for more um i just happen to have it up on my screen right now so i've got the numbers right in front of me i was looking at this the other day um but uh in 2018 residential electric consumption accounted for five uh quadrillion btus of energy commercial accounted for 4.7 quadrillion BTUs, industrial 3.25, transportation 0 0.03. So like when a lot of people start thinking about like energy efficiency, their mind goes straight to like, oh, photovoltaic panels and, and electrical cars and mm -hmm. stuff. And it's <laughs> like, that's really not where the energy is going. So, but uh, if we look at, um, electricity in particular, uh, in 2018, 38.8 quadrillion BTUs of energy 
were consumed in the process of producing electricity and 23.8 quadrillion BTUs, so much more than half, was lost to conversion and transmission. So when we cut our when we cut our electrical consumption in half on a residential level, we're not just cutting our electrical consumption in half, we're cutting the need for electrical production down in half. Yeah, that's really where the bang for the buck comes in, I think is like, these on site home scale kind of DIY solutions. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially up here in the north where you can have a wood stove going like six months out of the year, you know, and uh, solar water heater doesn't really make sense during those six months. So hooking it up, you know, to the hot water makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, big time. And, uh, you know, especially for those of us, like you were just mentioning the, um, the Amorpha fruticosa, but there's also, you know, the great uh, black locust yeah robinia <laughs> robinia pseudo acacia is this major awesome nitrogen fixing plant that produces rot resistant lumber and a uh, super fast growing pea family member that will also fertilize our hazelnuts and our pecans and our apples and sea berries and everything else that we plant it near and then uh for those of us who are growing the hazelnuts you want to prune out the logs once they're you know six seven years old you cut out those shoots from the shrub like I'm most excited as far as hazelnuts go I'm most excited about the hybrids um, that have the multi-stemmed shrubby American growth habit with the European you know big nuts with thin shells that's what excites me the most because then we get the high BTU wood out of it and the, the biomass and the soil building and the carbon sequestration and right and the black locust is another very high BTU burning wood and it coppices so well it just comes mm-hmm. right back you know twice yeah, as strong <laughs> totally coppice and pollard so yeah, yeah. you know you could you could have your black locust for fuel wood and just be pollarding it off at eight feet tall and after you know, 15 or 20 years when it's reached the appropriate, you know, diameter that you want for using it as a vertical support in an earthen home or uh, maybe uh, a subterranean greenhouse is another mm. appropriate technology that I think way more of us should be looking into because, you know, with that whole topic of building resiliency into our lives underground greenhouses offer the maximum amount of resiliency because with good airflow systems, good ventilation systems, an underground greenhouse enables us to keep our growing spaces cooler in the summertime and warmer in the wintertime. And with climate change, I think what we're going to see is much more extremes. Right. Yeah. So it's not just going to be overall hotter growing season. We need to be ready for frost in July. Yep. We need to be ready for 90 degree days in December yeah. and everything in between. That's true. And I think underground greenhouses offer us that kind of resiliency. And that's like 
I, I think underground and earthen is a great direction for us to go, you know, and it's just kind of a beautiful metaphor in this sense that like we've gotten so far from the earth and caused <laughs> so much damage and destruction the mm -hmm. the recipe for healing is for us to go back into the earth and go deeper into the earth and surround ourselves with earth and raise ourselves in earth and yeah yeah that's yeah so that's a great metaphor and a good strategy i think so I think we've, we've been talking for quite a while now already. Um, do you, th is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap it up and also maybe like how people can get in touch with you or follow you? Um, yeah, I think like, yeah, dang, we really have covered a lot, like what an hour and a half or more. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think the one thing that I really want to share with the whole world in general is that even though there's a lot of problems that we're facing right now as a people, uh, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be overwhelmed. We don't need to be depressed about it. Uh, we need to get enthusiastic about the solutions and activate each other and enliven each other and like really do what lights us up the most as much as possible, not to a point of like ignoring the issues and like, you know, ignoring things like what Enbridge is doing with line three, you mm. know, trying to drill under the Shell River right now and, mm. and the Red Lake River and the Mississippi River, you know, like definitely stay tuned in all the things, but not to a point that it overwhelms you and not to a point that it leads to inactivity. We got to stay active every day. One thing Wayne Wiseman said to me, he's like, hey, don't let your meat loaf you know, like, <laughs> it's a time for movement. We got to stay active. And so tune into the problems, but only to the extent that you're still able to stay super active and blissed out and enthusiastic about the solutions. Um, and yeah, for folks that want to get in touch with me, I'm real easy to find on social media. Uh, Eric Joseph Lewis at all the things um, E-R-I-C and then Lewis is L-E-W-I-S. Joseph spelled totally normally. And I'm on Gmail, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. My YouTube following's building. It's cool. I'm up to like 2,000 followers or something. Now. Nice. Congrats. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun. I'm getting more into up in the video content. And I was doing a little bit of video editing this morning. So that's really exciting me. Because you know, I'm seeing like my buddy Rob Greenfield, he's got like 300,000 subscribers to his YouTube channel. He's reaching, you know, tens of thousands of people a day. You know, I'm over here like each one teach 10. He's like, I'll teach 10,000 on Friday. <laughs> Dang, wow. dude. Those are the kind of numbers I want to get. So, yeah. Cool. yeah. Well, well, good luck. Yeah. I think people are definitely hungry for the kind of knowledge that you offer and the kind of enthusiasm and optimism, because it can be really dark thinking about, you know, the future and you, you are like keeping people motivated and, um, you have a lot of interesting ideas. So I think hopefully through this podcast, you'll gain some more followers. Yeah. Here's hoping. And yeah. And, uh, 
you know, I think on my Facebook, I even have my phone number on there still. Like, feel free to just hit me up anytime. Shoot me messages. I'm always happy to talk about all the things, figure out the solutions for how we can make this world more loving, blissful, and abundant. That's what I'm here for. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your work and thank you for being with us here on the show today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. It's been great getting to know you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Eric. Okay. All right. Ciao. Peace. Peace.